From Beyond Marketing, it's The 20-Minute Call, a podcast about the dreamers, boundary pushers, rebels, and champions of the skydiving industry. Each episode is a narrative journey highlighted by the highs, lows, and luck that the skydiving industry delivers as told by the most influential people within the sport. If you've ever dreamed of becoming a skydiver, perhaps opening a drop zone, or becoming the next world champion, check out the 20-minute call hosted by me, James LeBarry. My guest is one of the most respected professional camera flyers in the sport today. In the last decade, he has brought home gold medals in four-way, eight-way, 10-way, and 16-way formation skydiving at the U.S. Nationals. He's also been a member of the U.S. Parachute Team for eight-way, winning two gold and a bronze. He's one of the nicest guys you'll meet, and one true professional that I'm glad to call a friend. Please welcome to the 20-minute call, Elliot Bird. Thanks, James. Great to be here. Elliot, I'm so, so glad that you're willing to give me your time and uh, for our audience to learn more about you because, you know, you're, you're often behind the lens and uh, I, I want to bring you into focus here. Ooh, I said, see what I did there? That was nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely behind the lens for a reason, but I'm happy to do this. <laughs> Elliot, usually I begin these interviews sort of linearly from your, you know, your early start, but I'm actually going to start way more recently. Okay? okay. So I'd like to begin by having you tell me a story about your involvement with the 2019 U.S. Nationals. To jog the memory of those listening, SDC Rhythm XP arrived at the U.S. Nationals at Paraclete with, I think it's fair to say, very low expectations. Uh, Doug Barron had recently returned to the team following more than a year of rehab after a very serious injury, and it was expected that Arizona Airspeed would win that meet. But what occurred can only be described, I'd say, as a Hollywood movie. The underdog that was SDC Rhythm XP won in an incredible 11th round jump off against Airspeed. And the last time that had ever happened was in 2005. So can you reflect on that experience of how it was that you joined the team and what you experienced through those two days of what can only be described as maybe the most exciting skydiving scene in memory? And I get goosebumps as I reflect on it. It was so extraordinary. For sure, yeah, same here. It's uh, it was quite a roller coaster of emotions, that's for sure. So that year, um, so I was flying a video for my wife's team, Phoenix XP, and uh, she had uh, she had broken her leg, unfortunately. So at that point, the team kind of the Phoenix decided to not continue without her. So I was kind of a free agent um, and had no anticipation of competing at that year's nationals in four way. So I think it was at Summerfest of 2019 where uh, Steve Lefkowitz asked me if I was available and wanted to shoot video for for them at Nationals. So I was like, you know, uh, with a team like that, I wouldn't generally want to come in that late in the season. But, you know, with Doug's injury and everything, it was low pressure all around, you know. So I was like, ah, cool. Yeah, we'll do that. Um, so we made a plan to do 20 to 25 training jumps at Paraclete right before nationals. So I came in, uh, we were doing some jumps and uh, needless to say, I, I was still pretty nervous going in. During our training jumps, um, we, I, I just wanna say that Rhythm are all the nicest people that you'll ever meet. 
And uh, so, yeah, I had some nerves going up and the O exit in particular has always been my nemesis. The only time I've ever had a uh, camera bus at nationals was on an O exit. And so I was like, hey guys, I need to see this O. Like I really need to see that at least once, hopefully more than that. And so we launched the O on a training jump and I run right into Doug's back. <laughs> and I feel so bad about it. I'm beating myself on the jump. As soon as I get, I get back up and I'm filming and all good and I land. And the first thing I hear when I land is Doug says, got his ass. And uh, it was this moment of like, just relief coming from them. They were all laughing about it, thought it was hilarious. And like, I, I was felt so bad about it. And when I heard that on the ground, I was like, okay, this whole experience is gonna be great. Uh, and we're gonna have a good time. Yeah, going into the meet, again, low expectations. Um, I remember we had kind of an overcast day. There was like a thin, thin layer, not enough that we couldn't jump. We got out early, did that first jump. And uh, for me, the first jump at nationals is always the, I'm so nervous, so much is going on. As soon as I get out of that plane on that first jump, everything kind of calms down for me. And then the rest of the meet goes fairly smoothly. So we get out, gorgeous first jump, um, and they crush it. I, I can't remember what score they got, but they did really well. And from that moment forward, it was all smooth sailing. Hey, we're having a good time. We're having fun. Again, no expectations of beating airspeed. So as we're going through the meet, we start seeing that you know, we're, we're going like this the entire time, you know, uh, up one, down one, um, back and forth. And we get into round 10 and I'm like, oh, thank God, this is our last round. Like, I'm so happy for this to be over. I can't handle the stress anymore. Um, and we go up and we do that round. It was a pretty good round. And I land and I'm like, oh, thank God. And then I find out that we tied. And... <laughs> I almost lost it emotionally, physically, everything. I was like, I can't do this. I can't handle this. This is way too much pressure. Um, but fortunately, yeah, we come together as a team. And it, it was a little interesting because I came in late. And I, I have a very good relationship with all of Rhythm. But coming in late, you know, I felt like part of the team, but also not in a certain sense because I hadn't been training with them all year. And um yeah, we get on we get on the load and it's just us and airspeed. And I remember airspeed going first. And I remember it was an exit where, you know, I just didn't have 100% confidence in but I felt pretty well. And I remember sitting there and um, airspeed had Matt Davidson on on their lineup that year. And as we were going up in the plane, I just remember sitting there looking back and forth and being like, what am I doing sitting here right now? Like, how did I get to this position? I never anticipated myself being here. And Airspeed was going first and Matt, I know Matt Davidson pretty well and he looked at me and he just gave me this fist bump and I was like, okay, all is gonna be good. We're gonna have a good time. Get out of the plane. I'm definitely get super far from them as we exit and I'm in the middle of them. Like I'm so far, but I know I got it. And I have to get as far as possible so I don't hit them, don't have any camera busts, and then kind of close it in. Yeah, it's a, it's a bang around. It's great. We get down. Everyone's happy. But 
you know, that anticipation of seeing what the score is was just eating us all up inside. And I remember they had, when they did the scoring, um, everyone just sitting there just, you know, you were there, everyone, all the people that were there were just on the edges of their seat. And when we won, it was just kind of this moment of disbelief that this had just happened. It, it was super awesome. And the whole experience I'll never forget. I, I still feel bad that my wife was not able to compete that year because we were doing this, you know, we're on this time skydiver journey together. But um, yeah, definitely a mem- memory I'll never forget. And I don't think there'll ever be a nationals that'll top that for me. So for those listening and not familiar with competition skydiving, the stars of- are often the performers in frame. But the you know it's 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 called four way skydiving, but there's a fifth man. That's you. Yeah. <laughs> and no matter how good those guys turn points, those guys and gals, none of it matters if you are not getting them in frame. And that's a lot of pressure for a guy that you cannot add to their points, but you can take away their points. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, <sighs> as I say it, I feel stress. It's, it's, it's a lot of pressure for sure. And, and you put it, uh, you worded it perfectly, but if you mess that up, Ooh, it's very clear. And then everybody, you know, they have those TVs playing, uh, doing live judging and it's, you just, your heart just drops when you know your, uh, you know, your video comes up and you made a major mess up, uh, during that job. Yeah. <laughs> At what point in the meet? You know, you all go in there with such low expectations. At what point in the meet did you think, oh, wait a minute, something's happening here? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was about halfway through, I think, I round to round, to be honest. But I remember as we were going, things were just kind of starting to click for them. You know, again, as a videographer and coming in late, I was kind of away from the team, but I kind of could sort of sense with them that like things were really coming together. They had that air about them of like, this is happening, like things are going well for us. And of course, for me, that just increased the pressure dramatically. Yeah, again, nicest people, I've known them for years, and they definitely eased my worry a little bit by just uh, how they were behaving and who who they were at the time. You know, this is all good, we're gonna have a good time. I remember Jeanette just smiling at me all the time, like, we're just here to have fun. And we're doing great because we're doing this with our friends. What a special time. You know, when we think about this needs to be a movie, you know, the, the comeback of Doug Barron and how hard the left quitzes have been working on the, the rhythm project for all these years and just falling short behind airspeed, you know, for several nationals. And just when they think that this is not the year, it is the year. Absolutely. And then we, and, and our camera flyer brand new to us. It is like legend. Absolutely. Make sure you preserve that, uh, your footage of those rounds, because I have a feeling someone needs to pick this up as a movie because it was gold. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love to be a part of that. It was, like I said, it was one of those nationals that I'll never forget. Wow. Incredible. Well, let's, we have me goosebumps just talking about yeah, it. Yeah. You know, I've been rubbing my, <laughs> my arms a little bit. It's such a cool story. If you're a DZO or DZM listening to this podcast and you're not using Burbel, I've got a question. Why not? If the reason is price, what's the cost of your time? Other booking and manifest softwares are a one-size-fits-all. 
Burble was built from the ground up by a DZO for DZOs to maximize efficiency. Now, isn't that nice? There's no software that compares. Choose Burble. So we started on a high. Let's go back uh, to 2013 for a moment. Also U.S. Nationals. In 2013, Nationals was the first time that you were actually doing dedicated video for a team at Nationals. Like, boom, hey, we're doing this. Now, that seems to me like a scary proposition. Again, because we mentioned you can't add points, but you take them, you can take them away. And then to be thrust as a, as a camera flyer for a team at Nationals sort of unexpectedly, you're in the hot seat again. And that's at the start of your career. It's kind of amazing to me that you carried on under such pressure. It must have worked out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's that's an interesting story in and of itself, um, because I really at that point had no aspirations to be uh, a camera flyer for a team. What had happened was uh, at my home drop zone at the time, Triangle Skydiving Center, um, there was uh, an eight-way team um, put together, and I was flying actually inside the formation as an alternate on the eight-way team. Uh, as the alternate, I wasn't going to go to nationals with them, but my wife was on the team. My now wife was on the team. And so that was, you know, the first nationals experience. And I had intended not to go, but unbeknownst to her, my plan was to go to SDC and to propose to her, uh, there, which is a whole nother story. Terrible idea. I would have done it differently in the future, but she said, yes, so all worked out. But yeah, so I had told um, Chris Halson, um, one of uh, one of the teammates on on the eight way team, um, and also uh, kind of a photographer. Uh, I was like, "Hey, man, I'm going to do this. Could you do some take some pictures of the proposal for me?" And he was like, "Yeah, no problem. By the way, uh, we need a videographer for four way. Do you want to come shoot for us?" And so. Yeah, there really wasn't any pressure on that, uh, other than it being a first nationals. But it wasn't. It was a pickup team for him with some some longtime skydiving friends. Um, I don't know that they had trained or not. Um, but yeah, the the pressure of that nationals was more. Is, is I'm going to surprise my wife, my now wife. Is she going to say yes? And so that so once that pressure was kind of lifted after proposing, um, you know, nationals wasn't as bad as that. But the, the, the shakes I had getting to the proposal, that was that was the worst part. I, I can only imagine. What part of the competition did you propose? I, I take it, being that you said it was a bad idea, it was not after round no. two. No. So, so they actually ended up winning uh, Intermediate 8-Way that year, which was great. And so I talked to their team. Ca- so it worked out great for them. So I talked to their team captain, uh, LJ Wobker. And I was like, Hey man, I'm going to do this. When's a good time to do this? And he was like, how about you do it when we're finished training before we go into nationals so that I don't interrupt any of that stuff. And I don't want to go into all the details, but, uh, a couple months prior to nationals, uh, my wife, Lauren had her first cutaway and it was bag lock. So she, you know, high speed malfunction really shook her, but she had committed to go into nationals and uh so i'm there on the sideline waiting for her to land i had told chris to come out and take pictures with us and then somehow everyone from north carolina including people i didn't know the golden knights at the time all that stuff kind of followed me out to the landing area uh to meet her as she landed and i was so scared i couldn't be like hey 
stay away. Don't do this. So I'm walking out to the landing area. Lauren is considering quitting jumping at the time because she's so, you know, shooken up from this, uh, from the cutaway she had. And so she's coming in final and she's very emotional and she sees me in a hat. She doesn't recognize me because I'm not supposed to be at South Chicago whole group coming out behind her. And she thinks that she's going to get yelled at for something she did that she doesn't know starts crying. So she lands and recognizing that it's me. And the first thing she says, what are you doing here? Did one of my parents die? Are my cats dead? What is going on? As soon as I see her face, I'm like, I can't propose right now. This is a terrible idea, but I have this crowd of people behind me. I have this guy with a camera. So I do it. She says, yes, but yeah, in retrospect, I should have done it privately by ourselves, whatever, but she says, yes, her team goes on to win nationals, uh, win intermediate eight way. And we're married and we've almost been married 10 years now. So worked out great. You know, you could have done it privately and then it wouldn't be a great story. For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, this, this podcast is about you, not me, but it, it, it triggers a, a conversation of my own proposal whereby we were getting ready to fly out to Paris for their 40 year uh, anniversary. And then my wife and I were going to go on to Napa after the Paris event and I would propose there. However, uh, the ring that I had bought her the night before we were getting ready to leave for California, I had it locked away in a safe and we had a, a, a Uber that morning on the morning of our departure coming to pick us up and I couldn't find the key to the safe and I'm incoherent when I don't have coffee and I couldn't find this thing. And so I'm crestfallen when the Uber arrives and I don't have th this engagement ring. And I know that, you know, this was the trip I was going to propose. I'm sitting in the bomb shelter, you know, a day or two later and I'm bummed and, and, and my now wife is somewhere on the drop zone and I'm sitting in the bomb shelter talking to Shannon Pilcher and I'm like, oh, Shannon, let me just tell you this story. <laughs> and Shannon says to me, why, why would you not propose because you don't have the ring? That's crazy to me. He's like, if you love this girl, then do it anyway. And if she's a person that I know that, you know, you've described she'll be fine with it. So a few days later, we were in Napa. We went out to uh, a great restaurant and I proposed no ring, but I proposed. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, yes. And she said, yes. And it all worked out. And the funny thing is when we got back home from the trip, within being in the door for two minutes of being home, I found that key and immediately opened up the safe. And, and there it was, which is crazy to me because that morning for literally an hour, I was in a cold sweat trying to find this key and trying to play it cool and <laughs> not have, oh, it was a thing. Anyway, Shannon. Uh, yeah. Shannon let's move wise. on. We both have Shannon, unique engagement stories. <laughs> Very wise words. Keep it up. Shannon the wise indeed. <laughs> Thank you, Shannon Pilcher. You changed my life. <laughs> Elliot, I've had a good fortune of working with you for a few years uh, on various projects. And I've always felt that you've distinguished yourself as, I'm going to emphasize this word, professional. You're a professional camera flyer and that you hold high standards for yourself and you always deliver on time. And let me say for those listening or those that are aspiring to be a professional anything in the sport, for me who runs an agency and I'm working on timelines, 
for projects, when you hire a camera flyer or any artist, man, you need those things to come in on time. And, and part of the thing is, as a professional on my side, there's always stress involved when you have multiple variables on a project. And there is that stress of will X person deliver on time? Because if it doesn't come in on time, it's a problem for me. Now I'm dancing. With you, I never worry. Never any stress. You always come through on time. So I want to get some insight from you. What influence led you to holding yourself to such a high standard, not just on timeliness, but everything in your life? I don't know exactly where that came from. I mean, my parents always, you know, held me accountable for for everything I've done in life. Prior to skydiving, I I worked in the startup environment um, for four years. And then I went into clinical research where I did, I was a manager of data visualization there. So I have some background in other industries prior to, to coming into the skydiving. And it just always seemed like, you know, the right thing to do. Don't, don't set expectations too high in the sense of don't uh, overpromise and underdeliver, you know? So I always set that um, specific timeline of, you know, I'm gonna go out and do this project and then it's gonna take me, you know, four days to, to do, uh, to deliver on the pictures, the video, all that stuff. You know, so I don't know exactly where that came from. It's just always been a, hey, if I'm going to promise to do something, I'm going to deliver on that. Um, I'll definitely be the first to say that, you know, I do great work for sure. I think there are people out there that do, you know, just as good or better work than I do. But yeah, I've always prided myself on that. And that's always gotten me into the next steps of, of my business, you know. So I've, I've done work a lot for you, James, which I really appreciate that. And then for Rhythm, uh, I worked for Paraclete XP for a couple of years, and then now I'm working at Skydive Midwest. And and it's always just been a point of pride for me to get to the next stage in the business of, you know, following through on those commitments. So, yeah, I, I don't know exactly where that came from. Good upbringing uh, and just holding me accountable for for all my commitments. Yeah. Tell me about your parents. Where do I begin? <laughs> That's such a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is big. Hey, tell me about the lifetime of your parents. Well, tell me just a little bit, uh, a glimpse of, of what they do and and sort of a sense of your household. I mean, was it structured? Were, were you, you know, just give me a little bit of a glimpse into that world. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I grew up in Vermont. Yeah, my dad was a uh, computer programmer. He was actually at the beginning of the, um, he worked for geographic data technology, which was prior to um, like Google Maps and all that stuff. So his company was, you know, starting to map out the world digitally. Um, So he did that for, I think, seven or eight years. And then he went into private investing for himself. Uh, And then my mom was a uh, horseback instructor. So I grew up on a farm. Um, We had to go to, I went to pony camp a couple summers in a row um, and had to take care of horses and stuff like that uh, in Vermont. So a farm in the sense that we had animals, but not like a dairy farm or anything like that. Um, And yeah, they always had me structured. I did three sports every every year. And then um, they sent me off to boarding school when I was a freshman in high school. And that might have led to um, that. I kind of had to structure myself from an earlier age um, by being off on my own. Um, The school had structure for me, but, you know, I was kind of cast out and uh, I think they prepared me well for that by giving me responsibility around the house. 
and making sure I was, you know, waking myself up on time to, to get to school and things like that. I'm so glad I asked that question. That was so interesting. <laughs> you have a brother too, that that's how you got to North Carolina was he was uh, working at a, at a startup as well. Correct, but, yeah. uh, yeah. uh, and your brother also got into skydiving a little bit before you did. Yeah. Yeah. So he, um, so yeah, my brother's, uh, six years older than me. I went to school in Colorado, uh, and I started, um, skydiving in 2009 at around 24, I think, um, at mile high skydiving center. And the whole reason I, I kind of did that is my brother had his license at the time. And I always looked up to him as, you know, everything he did, I wanted to do as well, you know, as, as it goes with older and younger brothers. So yeah, I started my skydiving license out there and, uh, graduated college and I was kind of doing the, like, you know, trying to ski all snowboard all the time. Um, not being as responsible as I should be after college, you know, but I was kind of, I'd been at school for years and I was like, it's time to go have a little fun and, and take a break and stuff. And were you a good student? Uh, I, I'm a solid B student. Right there with you. I graduated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it got to a point uh, out in Colorado where I just, you know, uh, I, I majored in psychology and um, I didn't, uh, all the jobs I went after, they either said, hey, do you have six months experience or do you have a master's degree? I didn't have either of those things. And so, yeah, I couldn't find a job out there. And my brother offered me a job at his uh, startup, one of his startup companies in North Carolina. So I'd say six to eight months after I graduated, I moved to North Carolina to go work for him at the startup company. And I'd taken about a year, maybe 11 months off skydiving from, you know, that point to then starting up again in, in North Carolina. You and I also share another thing in common. And if you knew this, aside from our storied engagements, I also went to boarding school and, and that really shaped me, uh, because I, I went to boarding school at age 13. I was the youngest in my class, but that year probably made me need to grow up faster in terms of a level of independence. Yeah. Absolutely. That was huge. It was tough leaving home so young, but it forced me into, you know, having to be more responsible and, and be somewhat of a, a little adult, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah I don't sure. know if, you, if you had that same experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, the one story of that, right, is when I went off to college in Colorado, I uh, packed two bags just got on a plane by myself and went out there and I met my roommate and his parents were there for about a week. And, uh, you know, everyone's were, but I came out by myself and it didn't seem like an issue to me going out to a new state I'd never been to figuring out where my dorm is, all that stuff. And, uh, that was kind of an acknowledgement of, I guess, a little bit more independence and, and myself to, you know, figure out the world without my parents holding my hand along the way. One of the more challenging times, but definitely, was huge in my development. Sounds like yours too. For sure. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, you, we sort of touched on, you moved out to North Carolina and, uh, I, I wrote something down here that you worked for a big clinical research firm. And prior to that, you were doing data, data analysis contracts for a smaller company with about 10 people. But, and this is the, the part where I'm always intrigued by people that make big decisions that don't, that society says does not make sense. You go from sort of starving college student to working your way, you know, through startups and, and then working for a big clinical research firm. 
And during this period of time, you're really starting, you and Lauren are really starting to jump a lot more, but you've got a 90 minute drive commute from Durham to Skadav Paraclete XP. And then you decide, or you both decide, hey, this whole career thing that we're on, that we w- that we've been climbing, that, you know, I imagine the paycheck has been getting a little bit better year after year as as one job leads, you know, to another position and, and more responsibility. And then you say, hey, let's leave all of that. Let's get a little apartment in Rayford, North Carolina. Wonderful human beings, but, you know, not the most exciting town in North Carolina. And let's go do this thing. On paper, if I'm your parent, no, Elliot, this is a bad idea. And you seem like you're very calculating but you guys go and do that anyway, which is, which is obviously was a calculated move, but with a lot of uncertainty. So what was the, the, that point where you said, I can't do this corporate thing anymore. I got to go do that skydiving thing, which by the way, for most people is not a great financial decision. For sure. Yeah. So like I said, I had been working in startups for a bit and the last one I was with, um, was called accelerated vision. And that company, yeah, about 10 people and it ended up folding. And the CEO of that company, um, his brother worked at PRA, Pharmaceutical Research Associates. And so he got uh, an executive level job over there and he brought, he offered jobs to everyone on his uh, team from the startup over at that company. So what happened there, I guess, keep it brief. Um, so we, we launched a new department that was um, visualizing all the data that they were collecting from clinical research. So, you know, that can have its own challenges of, of starting a new department at a, at a big 10,000 person company. But as we got there, you know, I was a single person doing data visualization. We got a tool called Tableau to deploy it across the, across the company and then um, help them analyze their data better. And then we started expanding and hiring more and more people. And uh, before I left, I became the uh, data visualization team lead. So I was managing about eight people um, that were doing development in that data visualization uh, realm. There were a lot of issues, you know, when you're when you're dealing with a 10,000 person company, there's layers and layers of bureaucracy you got to deal with to, to get your job done. I thought if I get to this next position of manager, I can change and make things easier for everybody and blah, blah, blah. And what I found as I started climbing this ladder is that the the crap got worse the higher you went. It was more hands-off and more dealing with the politics of the organization. It was great. The paycheck was great, but I'd been thinking a lot about it. And it was, do I want to spend the rest of my life dealing, being a cog in this 10,000 person wheel and just fighting every day with people to try to do what is right for the company. You know, in the end of the day, it's, we're trying to help people and nobody, it, it felt like nobody wanted help. They did. And you know, that's a whole nother topic, but do I want to live the rest of my life doing this and climbing this chain? And, and where I really found joy was hanging out with my wife at the drop zone every weekend and jumping and competing and all that stuff. So she actually quit before I did. And she was commuting down to Rayford and running the school down there. She got opportunity. And I wasn't quite on board at that point. Um, but the the longer I was doing it and the talking to her about how good of a time she was having, it was like, you know, the decision came to, hey, maybe we can do this. And I had my tandem rating at that point. I think I was, I think we were both signed up to get our AFF ratings at that point. 
And I knew I really liked the video game and, and doing photography and all that stuff. So we started Bird's Eye Studio um, and I had spoken with Rhythm and stuff. And I, I'd been doing a little bit of work for Rhythm on the weekends at their tunnel camps, kind of promoting that for them. And I was like, uh, I got my tandem rating, about to get my AFF rating. And then I've kind of got this in to get into the video and photography kind of realm there. Um, and I always knew, Lauren and I both knew we didn't want to just work at the school doing tandems all day. So the decision came when we kind of had a good, a better plan for how are we going to do this without just working at the school all day? Uh, Cause we knew we didn't want to do that. And so when the, when the skills were there, you know, all the, the situation was aligned for us to be able to do both work at the school, but then do this other thing with video and photography, you know, it kind of all came together and it's like, okay, let's make this happen. And that was 2017. And then from there, it's kind of slowly evolved into less and less of the tandem and AFF and more and more of the video and organizing and stuff like that. You know, now that's, that's all we do. I don't even have any of those ratings anymore. How many tandems did you do? I think I hit about 300, two to 300 wow. in that range. Yeah. So I got to take my dad and I got to take my uncle. Um, the cool story there, my uncle, uh, he owned a drop zone out in California, skydive Pope Valley. Um, and I didn't know that until after I had started skydiving. And he was on the US team as the uh, style and accuracy way back in the day. He hadn't jumped since the 80s, I think. So I got to take him on a tandem again, get him current, uh, which was a really awesome experience there. But one of my last tandems before I hung up the rig. And here I thought I knew all about you. I did not know that. That's so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a fan of the 20-minute call, I'd like to invite you to be a member of a budding community with me on Patreon. By becoming a patron of the show, you can join me behind the scenes to discuss options for future guests and gain access to some show swag. It's pretty sweet. Details on how to become a patron can be found in the show notes. Okay, back to the show. Many people, when they leave a thing to go full-time skydiving, and, and there's sort of that, it's, it's a real joke. I mean, it's a joke, but, but it is also real that when you become full-time in the sport, sometimes you, f you forget to actually like start fun jumping. You know, we see a lot of tandem instructors that, you know, they work all day and they're so exhausted you know, that, that the thing that brought them to the sport, all this fun jumping with friends kind of goes away. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they become, you know, that part, how do you find, or how have you been able to find a work-life balance where both you and your wife are so enveloped in the sport, you know, particularly being a camera flyer on all these teams through the years. I remember in running a drop zone, there are days of tedium where the weather isn't good and you are literally sitting around a zero energy drop zone as half of everyone is sort of sleeping on the packing mat, hoping for a break in the weather. You know, that's all fine and well, but do that for year after year after year after year of, of time being burned and, and the frustrations that come with it and the ups and downs and ebbs and flows of, of being on a competitive skydiving team. How do you corner a, a life that's outside of skydiving so that there can be a balance to appreciate it? That's an excellent question. And that's something I'm still working on for years. Things have been full on live, breathe skydiving, right? Yeah. 
we've we've all felt it um the, the great thing about video flying and what i do is that um i still get to fun jump i'm just fun jumping with a camera on my head you know so so those fun jump times are you know hey what are you doing you're doing a you know four-way belly or six-way hey we're gonna go do a free fly jump i tag along and i'm still fun jumping even though i'm working you know so i have a camera on my head i'm still providing the pictures for the drop zone for my marketing job um so that's been you know, uh, a way to keep me engaged and not um, just, you know. Um, but yeah, in terms of work-life balance, I actually have been working on that a lot because um, I believe it was my first interview I did with, I believe it was L&B with DJ. And he was like, what do you do outside of skydiving? And I, would, I didn't have an answer for him, you know. And uh, so that really got me thinking. Um, and over the past couple of years, I've been trying to work on that more. Um, spending more time with family. Uh, I've definitely missed a lot of family get togethers because they all do it over the summer and that's when we're working. And when the winter, when things slow down, no one wants to you know, go anywhere. <laughs> so yeah, I've been uh, yeah, trying to spend time, more time with family. Um, I've definitely, been getting into DIY. I'm starting to get into woodworking uh, a bit and doing some stuff around the house. I built some built-in shelves this past winter. And then I'm also into building Lego. So I got into that as well out here in uh, in Wisconsin when it's so cold outside, you don't want to go out. So what are we going to do inside to keep ourselves busy and occupied and stuff? And then also reading. Recently got into reading. I got myself a Kindle and I'm reading nonstop as much as possible, as much as time permits. Okay, you've 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 keyed my interest there. A couple things. Lego. Love Lego. Grew up with Lego. Love building Lego. How how big is this Lego addiction? How many sets have you built? I have a feeling there's a bunch off there's a lot. off screen here. There's a lot. So these these built-in shelves I built specifically to house all my Legos. Um so Lauren, um, she likes building them with me, but we are adults. And she does not want to see the Lego sets all over the house. So in the basement, I built these built-in shelves. Man, it's 40 sets, maybe. I got my favorite one right here. Okay. So yeah. Have a look. This is the Ooh. yellow submarine. That is cool. It's in a for those listening, this is this is in an acrylic case, like it's a display case of a very cool build there. Wow. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I was a big big Beatles fan, and so I got that set, and uh, that's the only set I have upstairs. Everything else is housed in the basement. <laughs> pretty cool. I'm I'm very interested in the Lego architecture. Yeah, for sure. That that looks pretty cool. Um, I would love to have a full Lego city at some point, but that'll take some time. That's awesome. I mean, it really it's like three dimensional puzzle making, isn't it? I mean, and yeah. you get to work with your hands, and it's interesting. I I've I've sort of thought, even though you majored in psychology, that you kind of have an engineer's brain. And I wonder if this, if that feeds into that or if I'm just completely full of garbage. Yeah, maybe. I took a, I can't remember when I did it, um, but I took kind of an aptitude test. Um, my dad had me do it just to see kind of what, going into, going into college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. The, the highest thing I excelled at was 3D visualization. And I actually did go to school. I started out going into engineering and then pivoted away from, from engineering into psychology. Yeah, it was kind of more interesting to understand how my mind worked uh, as opposed to, to the engineering side of things. So, 
I think the Lego thing kind of keeps, it just keeps me busy and occupied. And then in the end, you have this awesome thing that you get to look at that you built, you know? What's one of the cool books that, uh, that really stands out that you've been reading? Uh, so right now I'm reading, uh, it's called the King Killer Chronicles. Um, and it's, uh, it's a fantasy book, um, that is about, it's kind of more, it has magic, but it's like a, a scientific magic. So there is, it's not just, you know, Harry Potter magic where you say a word and things happen. There's actually like scientific behind it. Like you do this and that and that, and then everyone outside of the magic realm in the book sees it as magic but the people doing it see it as i'm just creating two links between these two objects if that makes sense um so i always find it interesting to know what people are listening to whether it be in podcasts or what they're reading because it does give an interesting insight to that person and even the structure of the world that you just described in that book along with your Lego, it's like you're a kid at heart with, with, you know, a very active brain. That's curious. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, I feel like, uh, and I might not be alone in this, but throughout, uh, I've had some insecurities throughout my life, which I think a lot of people do. And I think a lot through high school and college, I did a lot of things that I wasn't, it wasn't necessarily me. It was what I thought people wanted out of me, you know? And so in the last couple of years, I've been more embracing that the side of me, that's actually me caring less and less about the interpretation other people had about me trying to do less people pleasing, I guess you could say. I'm with you. I mean, I'm full of insecurity in in my life or for most of my life. And and I'm, you know, working on, on being okay with my unique voice, if you will, um, not literally, but more, more figuratively in terms of, of how I think that's so interesting, Elliot, and, and what freedom comes with that. Yeah. Yeah. It took me years to, to kind of get there and it's been a very slow process, but I've kind of rejected the nerd in me for a lot of years and, uh, you know, mid thirties, it's now starting to come out, um, yeah, last year, back to things that I do, I, I actually started getting into Dungeons and Dragons, and I built a uh, uh, built a gaming table for one of my teammates from Next Gork Amion, uh, so we can do in person Dungeons and Dragons games. <laughs> wow, nerd! A couple of years ago, I never never would have admitted that, <laughs> but I'm excited about it now. Nerd on, my friend. <laughs> it's a safe space. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, by the way, it's amazing. I've never played Dungeons and Dragons, but my cousin, Stuart, when I was growing up, used to play that. It's amazing the longevity of that game. That has carried on oh, yeah. for decades. It's yeah, amazing. absolutely. And games can go on years. So he, he's been playing the same game since COVID. He's on like his third year of it or fourth year of it now. Interesting. Um, so you can, you can do these very short games where you can go on for years and years and years. It kind of goes on as long as you want. Wow. Let's pivot for a moment here. Um, sure. You know, as a full-time professional skydiver, the sport is taking you all over the U.S. It's taking you to Australia. It's taking you to Russia. It's taking you to far-flung places around the world. Is is there a highlight of any of these places you've visited? They've all been awesome. Um, the highlights for me are any place I get to travel with my wife and compete with her. So Australia was our first, uh, you know, world meet. And we got to do that together, which was a very unique and awesome experience. 
And then Russia was great. There were a lot of challenges there, 32 hours to get there. Uh, and then we were there for two weeks and only ended up doing, we did seven competition jumps and I think 12 jumps. So that was a lot. Uh, Russia was great. Uh, I don't know that I would travel 32 hours again to get back there. I guess to answer that question, the highlight anywhere I get to go with my wife is the best. Man, that's beautiful. Let's hone in on Russia, and then we'll talk about Lauren here a little bit more. Yeah. I feel like that was, that was a really tough meet because there is all this anticipation. There's Everyone wants it to make, make it to the world meet. And in order to do so, you essentially need to win the nationals, which is no small feat in itself. So just getting to the world meet, huge achievement. And then you get there and it's not quite as organized as I understand it at that particular meet. There was obviously a lot going on in the world, but right, I think, really in the midst of COVID. Yeah. Uh, when you guys got over there and, you know, terrible weather and things were a little bit uh, somewhat, from what I've heard, I want to speak negatively on anyone, but I think a lot of people came away from that going, mm, a little bit of a downer with the weather organization. I know that you know, aircraft when you first arrived wasn't sort of all ready to roll. And, you know, was that a little bit of a disappointment going, wow, we, we, this event is on a pedestal and it, it wasn't really what you had hoped it to be, or did I, did I misunderstand? No. Yeah. So I, it, it goes both ways. Right. So, so one thing is that one of their planes had crashed uh, about a month before we were supposed to get out there and eight people died on it. It's very, uh, concerning going into that. And, you know, there was a lot of unknowns, right? Like we're going to, to Russia, uh, which we've never been, I've never been to before. Uh, and we didn't really know how things operated over there. The drop zone itself was gorgeous. Uh, it was out in the middle of nowhere, Russia, Siberia. Yeah. So we get out there and there had been a lot of, you know, uh, you know, I was on XP eight with, with Kirk who has connections all over the place. And so we had planned to do like 20 jumps or something and we get out there and the weather is gorgeous. Um, but apparently the, all the airplane operation out there is run independently from the drop zone. It's a military run thing. Um, so we get out there and, and the drop zone's like, yeah, of course we can, you guys can do 20 training jumps, but, uh, the military said otherwise. So it was gorgeous weather when we got there, but we just weren't able to do the kind of training we wanted to do while we were there. The other thing about that is that the plane that had crashed, all the parts of it were right next to the runway, right next to where we took off. So every time we taxied out, we would go past this crashed plane that a major tragic event had occurred on that plane. And um, so that was a bit, bit nerve wracking. So. I think a lot of that goes into the, un, uh, you know, it being unfamiliar, you know, we're in a different country, we're operating under their rules, we're on planes that we've never jumped before, I've never jumped before. So the uncertainty kind of weighs in on the, the nerves associated with that. I think they did it. They did a great job considering all the stuff going on and the drop zone was really amazing. It's just the, that aspect and then the, the travel time and then dealing with with the COVID aftermath kind of all collapsed in on it. You know, I think at a different time, had COVID not been a factor and it, it had not been delayed a year due to that, it could have been a much different experience than, than it was, but it's still great. Still glad I went, had a great time with the team and 
you know, but, but yeah, there were a lot of factors that, that went into that meet itself. This is not a question, but more of a, a comment and wondering if you found this to be true is particularly when you talk about Russia and what we read about in the news every day and, and not just every day, but you know, Russia is, is a narrative country in talk when talking about U.S. and, and Russian history that, that goes back a long way and thinking through the Cold War. And, and it can be easy to paint a broad stroke over a culture of people when all we hear about is the leadership tied to that culture. That can be dangerous where one can make assumptions on a group of people as if they are, it's us and them. Did you find, though, that when you are with your Russian counterparts in jumpsuits on the drop zone, that that all that melts, melted away? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I definitely think there's a big difference between the people on the ground and the people making those decisions as it is in every country, I would imagine. An interesting thing, um, so they had, and I, I can't remember why, but for whatever reason, Russia was not able to compete under their Russian banner at that point in time. I wish I could remember why. But um, So they came out wearing their Russia eight-way shirts. And some people at the FAI know can't do that because you guys are under a generic flag. You can compete, but not as the Russia eight-way team. And so we went and actually got those shirts from the Russians and wore them in a solidarity of, hey, this is not a political thing. We're skydivers. We're not part of all the all the drama going on up there at, at the wider level. So that was a, a big thing for us. And yeah, we totally supported them and being able to represent their country at a meet that they were hosting. To answer your question, yes, there, there was a big difference there for sure. I, I imagine that meant so much to them of that, that show of solidarity. Yeah, yeah. But, but going in there, there is, I think it's just human nature. You know, there is a little concern, you know, of these, um, based on all the things that are happening globally, uh, you know, associated with whichever country going in there. But uh, that's very quickly goes away once you get there and, and realize we're just a bunch of skydivers just here to have a good time. We're all people. Yeah. So let's talk about Lauren. You know, and we're weaving in and out of your of your life and, and, and through time. And Lauren, it's, it's very obvious in this interview how much she means to you, which is great because she's your wife, of course. But you both are in the midst of getting ready to start a new chapter yes. and that you've decided to adopt, which is just, to me, so beautiful. Absolutely. What, where are you in that process of adoption? Sure, yeah. And for those listening that might be thinking about adoption, are there any insights that you can share in this process? Man, so what I would say to those people, if you're looking to do it, uh, reach out directly because it would take hours to cover it in here. Yeah, we're doing a domestic infant adoption. So yeah, we started about two years ago and to, I'm going to try to compress it as best as possible, but uh, it's a very lengthy and involved process. We had to get a, a, what they call a home study. And that takes about six to eight months where the state that you're residing in comes in and they basically confer that you are capable of raising a child. Um, so they come into our house, we do several interviews. We have to get fingerprinted. We do local, state, and federal background checks. And then you get a 
20 page document that says, yes, these people are capable of adopting and raising a child and the child will thrive in this environment. And from there you start Matt um, signing up with uh, either your local state agency, or you go to other states and sign up with those agencies. One of the big things is termination of parental rights. And so uh, when you do adoption, what happens is, I just um, back up a little bit. So there's the uh, home study, and then what you do is you create a family profile book. So Lauren and I have a profile book online that's about 12 pages that is pictures and text that we wrote about who we are as a couple. From there, we sign up with an agency and um, we get presented cases of birth moms looking to place their child for adoption. We look at look at their profile and we say we'd like to present and then we present our family book to them and then they decide whether they would like to match with us or not. We have no kind of, I don't want to say power, we, we really, we cast our book out and, and hope that somebody looks at us and says, these people are cool. I would trust uh, placing my child with them uh, for the rest of its life. You know, it's a big, big decision to, to make. So we're, we're working with uh, Texas right now, and we just signed up with um, an agency out of Kansas City that operates in Kansas City, Missouri, and Arizona. Yeah, the reason for not doing it in Wisconsin is they have what's called termination of parental rights. And once a baby's born, there's a certain time period uh, that differs between states of when the mom can terminate her rights as a parent, and then we can take custody of the child. Um, in Wisconsin, Wisconsin is actually the worst state for that, which is 30 days. And so what has happened is, um, this is like a, a worst case scenario, but um, mother matches with the, uh, an adoptive family, go to the hospital, mom changes her mind and says she doesn't want to adopt, uh, doesn't want a place for adoption. So the family doesn't get the kid. And then a week later, she says, no, I do want to adopt. So the family then takes placement of the child. A week later, she changes her mind again. So in Wisconsin, it's 30 full days before the mom can legally sign over her rights, um, which, which opens yourself up to that back and forth, which can be traumatic for the child as well as the adoptive parents and the, and the birth parent. Um, Texas is a 48-hour uh, termination of parental rights, and most states are 24 to 48 hours. And so that kind of makes it more final. Not a bad thing. Wisconsin is very pro keep kids with their biological family, which is great, but it also can lead to some heartache and stuff when it comes to the adoption process. An emotional roller coaster for sure. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. How has this process been for you all emotionally thus far? Because this process has been going on for two years. Yeah, it's been it's been tough. Um, so we've been at the actual uh, matching phase for about three months now. We started the end of October timeframe. So we're at the end point where we're starting to see cases and presenting the cases and just waiting to be picked by a birth mother. So we're, we're, we're at the end, but it's definitely a, a bit of a roller coaster being at this point and then still not having not matched yet. But hopefully, you know, it'll happen excuse me, happened soon, which is, you know, we signed up with another agency. So we're kind of casting 
a wider net at this point. Um, the hard thing is, is that it could, we could get a case that says this kid is born. You have to go right now and pick up this kid. So all of my projects, all the things I'm signing up for, for my career come with the caveat of, Hey, I could call you the day before, or I could be in the middle of an event and say, I gotta go. So we've kind of had to prioritize all the work associated with adoption ahead of everything else, which has been tough, but fortunately being upfront and with the people I work with, everyone's very understanding of, of that and that I have to prioritize uh, starting this family over everything else. So, yeah. Wow. You know, just when I think about maybe the process of putting together that book that says, this is who we are as people. Wow. That must be intimidating very, to put that together. Very. Yeah. You, you want to present this, this, like, we're the perfect family. Like your kid's going to have the best time with us ever. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of pressure for sure. And like, we're very unique in that we're skydivers. Um, and that could be cool. Uh, we could have people that look at it and they're like, why would I give our, my kid to this family? They're risking their lives every day and they could die. And then what's up with my kid then? So it's been tough. And then you have to compress your, who you are as people into 12 pages, you know? So it's, it's a tough process, but, um, we're confident it'll work out. It's just a matter of playing the waiting game. Wow. I thank you for sharing that. That's very personal. Gives great insight to you and Lauren as people, but additionally is helpful to, to understand that a little bit more, especially for those that are thinking about this journey as well. We did not know how involved it was until we got into it. And so, yeah, whenever I explain it to people, they're blown away by how difficult and how long of a process it is. So anyone that's considering it, you know, uh, you can always start the process, like get all the background work done, like the home study and just get that, get the ball rolling because before you know it, it's going to be two years later and, you know, you're still trying to work on that family and for us, we're, we're both, I'm 38, Lauren is 37. So like the clock is kind of ticking in terms of, I don't want to say being too old, but we also don't want to be 80 when our kids in high school, you know? Yeah. I, I doubt that'll happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. That's an extreme case, but yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Beyond Marketing, the digital marketing agency for the skydiving industry. Now I'm not a fan of lots of ads during a podcast. I mean, who likes ads? So I'll stop talking about <laughs> how marvelously wonderful Beyond Marketing is. But if you're curious about what the amazing people of Beyond Marketing do to help drop zones and manufacturers thrive, then you should check out their website at dropzone.marketing. That's dropzone.marketing. Elliot, final question. I'm always intrigued to know of taking the less the, the road less traveled, right? And in, in the terms of a crossroads moment where you had to make a decision. Two roads diverge. Do I go this way or do I do go this way? Or maybe it's an accidental crossroads moment where you did something, and, and I've shared this before, so pardon my viewers hearing this again, but for me, it was a major crossroads moment was just putting a business card on this van in, in, in a parking lot that said Scott of Carolina Parachute Center, which led to me becoming lifelong friends with a DZO there and making my first tandem and had that not simple action of business card on windshield. Hey, I'm interested about this thing. 
I'm probably not speaking with you right now. Do you have a, a crossroads moment where had you not made the decision to do something that maybe you and I are not speaking right now? Yeah. Um, I mean, the first one would be going full time uh, and making that decision there to dedicate everything to to the skydiving life. Um, the second thing, which I actually have not shared publicly before, but a lot of my friends know is that I quit drinking four years ago, almost four years ago. So I kind of made that. I was already in the full-time game, but I made the decision that that wasn't doing anything positive for my life anymore. You know, life's gotten 10 times better as a result of that. So I probably would still be skydiving and still be doing what I'm doing, but I wouldn't be as happy and as confident of a person that I am today and embracing my passion for Lego and stuff like that um, had I not made that decision. So. I would say I would say the the drinking thing uh, and and being completely sober has been that that thing for me. Wow, that's fascinating. And there's many like you that have made that decision where they wouldn't necessarily say that you know they were an alcoholic, but they didn't like who they were when they were drinking or how they how it made them feel, say the next day. You know, there are several folks that have been very outspoken that it has really made a major difference in their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the, the party scene is a big, it's a big part of the culture of skydiving, you know, and I, I was definitely involved in that for many years. And, um, yeah, I just, you know, got to a point, it, it was kind of happened around COVID. I wouldn't say there was more interest in that than, than jumping, but there was definitely this, like, I can't wait till we're done jumping so I can get a beer, you know? And when that, those thoughts started coming into my head, it was just kind of like, what am I doing? Like, I'm here to, to jump. I'm not here to drink, you know? And um, so I kind of made that decision from there. And, you know, in the beginning, it was tough. I felt like I wasn't kind of part of the crowd anymore. Over time, I became okay with that and okay with who I was as a person more and more. Yeah, it's a decision that I'll never regret making. Wow. I know Mel Curtis has shared a similar sentiment you know, how much her life is better as a result too. That's, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. I, I, the last thing on that I would say is that there, there are actually a lot in skydiving to do that. And I'm part of a group called Skydiver Supporting Sobriety. Yeah. It's a great group of people. And like, there is skydivers who don't drink. Um, you know, I thought that, that the part, if I wasn't part of the party scene, I wouldn't be part of skydiving. I thought I might have to quit if I didn't, or I might want to quit if I wasn't part of that scene. And, and it turns out there's a lot of skydivers out there that don't participate and we still have just as much fun. Interesting. Elliot. you know, what's funny is I imagine skydiver supporting sobriety has been around for a while, but it's been hitting my consciousness much more recently. I've been seeing much more on social media about it. And, you know, they're like, they're, it's a very iconic looking logo that, you know, is on stickers and is starting to show up at drop zones throughout the country. But I love seeing this movement in skydiving where it has been for a long time, or at least when I was at the drop zone on the daily, that there was the cool kids and everyone wants to be with the cool kids and the cool kids kind of do a certain thing. It's, it's literally like being in school. Yeah. You know, the drop zone is school. It's like a high school and you don't want to be the outcast. You want to get along with everyone. You don't you know, you don't want to be out on the forefront, but you don't want to be a total wallflower. And and I feel like there's this movement, maybe in society, and it's certainly we're seeing it in skydiving where it's cool to be who you are. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, like I said earlier, I, I've kind of, my whole life was geared towards like trying to impress those people or be one of those people. And it was at the detriment to who I actually was, you know? And so the path to, for me, not drinking has kind of opened up who I am to me, uh, to myself, you know, I, I know myself a lot better now than I did before. And I'm much more confident in, in who I am and saying no to things and, and yeah, just being confident, uh, as a whole in all my decisions and, and everything I do today. Mm. And that's great. There's, there's so many takeaways. I even think from a marketing perspective, when I speak with business owners and I'll say, you know, case in point, I, I met with a entrepreneur yesterday and he has so much passion for what he does. But nowhere in, on his website or anywhere do we get a sense of who he is. And he's in the kind of work where there needs to be a high level of trust. And, and he's working real hard to look real professional. But as a result, he looks just like everyone else. So he's, he's not uniquely different. We start talking about you know who you are is, is what makes you so unique and different. And that shouldn't be muted. Yeah. And I, I think, Elliot, in the things that you've said today, that on the surface, you are a camera flyer as you are known. But as we get into the details, it, it's so much more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more, more to it than that. Yeah, and that, that's who I was. I, I embraced Elliot Bird's Eye Studio camera flyer, you know, and I, I feel like now finally I'm starting to yeah, acknowledge that I'm a lot more than that. And, and like you asked earlier about hobbies outside of things, and I'm starting to explore all that stuff. And don't get me wrong, I'm still very much into the skydiving game, but I'm also very much embracing, you know, really what I want to do in this sport and what I want to focus on and, and which will give me more time to focus on the other things as well, like going through this adoption process and starting a family. Because I know I know that's going to change things a lot for me, figuring out who I am and then putting the focus on the things that I really want to do in skydiving and then finding that really good balance uh, with that and my life outside of it. If anybody is inspired by your story today and they want to reach out to you and let's say they want to hire you, what is it that you can do for them and how do they connect with you? Um, yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> I have, um, uh, so Bird's Eye Studio, that's B-Y-R-D-S is I have a website, I have uh, Instagram, Facebook, um, also Elliot at Bird's Eye Studio. And um, I do uh, video and photography work. So a lot of things that I've done is go to drop zones um, that are in need of good media, both for, for social media, as well as for new websites and things like that. Um, and so I can come out on a weekend and capture everything you kind of need for, for all that stuff to cover all the bases there. And then I also do uh, event jobs as well. So covering big way events through photography and uh, social media. Yeah, creating an event edit to cover that event and kind of a full recap of everything. And then I'm also looking for anything new, you know, so anything interesting in skydiving that you want to do, I'm always interested in capturing it on camera. I want to throw an endorsement. We work with a lot of drop zones with their websites. And because, and this is something that is a major pet peeve for us, is Handcam has become so big, but Handcam stinks for website, you know, for website development. And we often say in, in my line of work, a website 
is only as good as the photography on it. We can design the best website ever, but if the photography is no good, forget about it. And so we have reached out to you through uh, the last few years to help us capture great outside photography because it's just great to get that better perspective. That's where I referenced earlier, you are a delight to work with, Elliot. You are a true professional. And for any DZOs out there that you know are wanting to put your best foot forward, do not settle for average photography. You've got too much invested in your business to make that first impression mediocre. The imagery on these websites, because that's usually the first point of contact that your potential tandem students are getting, needs to have some wow factor. And that's why we bring you in on these projects is, is the DZO is looking for the wow factor. And we're always pushing against our clients of if, you, if you're making this investment in a website and in all your gear and and all of this, don't put foot wrong here. I can't emphasize that enough. Furthermore, I know that you have a passion for teaching. And uh, I think that if anyone wants to learn to be a camera flyer, you would be a wonderful coach to to help them with that. So birdseyestudio.com. I am plugging not because Elliot is my friend, but because I use him as a, as a professional. So uh, I'm, I'm grateful to you and your work and, and your standards. Awesome. Yeah. Th and thank you for all the opportunities. I want to plug a little bit more here too, uh, real quick is, uh, I'm doing my first camera camp, uh, at Paraclete in March. So, um, oh. yeah, I've been putting, putting together a ton of material and stuff like that. And then, um, a big part of that is, um, learning how to fly your camera suit and all that stuff. So I have my first official one. I've, I've done it one-on-one -on -one before, but my first official one with multiple people, uh, coming up in March. So that's kind of a trial run for me to see how, that goes. And then the future plan is to kind of move into the uh, coaching world and, and um, helping people grow up their camera skills, both in, you know, team flying as well as big way events and stuff like that. Woo. Elliot, there's a gap in the market for that. The, the industry is so needing that because I remember being a, a part-time camera flyer and I, I owned a, a video concession and just the process, you know, just from camera setup being comfortable enough to drill holes into your very expensive helmet and, you know, figuring things out to just process that's so trial and error that could be accelerated with some formal guidance and, and someone that's trustworthy because so many camera flyers have so many different opinions about how things should be done. And man, it would be lovely to have uh, some standardization that uh, helps accelerate uh, one's uh, progress. So man, I'm excited to hear that. That's that's super great. Is that information on your website as well? Uh, it is not yet. This is, like I said, this is kind of a trial thing. Um, I probably won't let us do it. So it's been kind of um, a challenge and the result is we're going to Paraclete to do it. So I, I kind of haven't really publicly shared that yet in terms of how to sign up and set up camps and stuff like that. Um, but that's kind of the plan moving forward as, as I develop the curriculum and then uh, how we're going to approach it. But the big goal, I talked to Mike McGowan, uh, I think two years ago, and, and the big kind of goal is to standardize that, not not create a rating, but the, the big thing, you know, Tam being the biggest one, has a good enough reputation where they could come to the school, we could get them signed off on tandem video, and then at that point, they could go to any drop zone that says, this person's okay to fly tandem video at our drop zone. Cool. Yeah, not create a rating, but cr create a create a rating in a sense that's that's hey we've signed off that you can do this 
Elliot, you're going to be successful. Thank you. Because everything you've done has always been uh, first class and there's a need for it. Absolutely. So uh, by the time this comes out, you'll probably be in the midst of that camp. I can't wait to to hear how it went. And I look forward. I want to put in the show notes. I'm going to preempt this. I want to put in the show notes your website and a mention of this. Because by the time people come around to it, you'll probably have something published. Because I feel like this will this is going to be taking off at some point. Elliot, thank you for your time today. Thank you for the story. I so enjoyed the conversation. It feels so good to have known you for many, many years. But for us to sit down and chat and learn more into the... the we know the things, but to go a little one level deeper. For sure. Oh, it's so awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, thank you so much for being here, uh, for, for having me here. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, it's always good to share, share the story. And each time there's a little bit different something that I delve into there. So definitely good times. Thank you. Cheers, Elliot. Cheers. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the 20 Minute Call podcast. Please do follow us on your podcast app. So you always have the latest episode, which is released every Monday. If you want to contact the team, our email address is podcast at beyondmarketing.xyz. This episode was edited and engineered by Garnet Snydrick of the YouTube channel, Blue Skies, Fun Days. Thanks for listening and join us next week for our next episode.